Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mid Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This I podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Doesn't seem a year since Mr. Seawolf beat Quacker Jack, Star of the Seas and Military Zone in a blanket finish to the gong, the inaugural running of the first $1 million race to be run on the historic Kembla Grange track. The win gave jockey James McDonald a rare double, just one week after he'd won the Hunter on Savatiano at Newcastle. The remainder of the card will offer metropolitan prize money with the exception of the Tab Highway which will carry its normal $75,000 purse. The roomy Kembla course with its 400 metre run-in lends itself to a race like the Gong. Who would have thought Newcastle and Kembla would one day host million dollar races on consecutive Saturdays? It's Kembla's turn next Saturday, November the 21st, the second running of the Gong part of the new look of New South Wales racing. The formation of training partnerships has fairly exploded in Australian racing in recent years, with racing being conducted seven days a week in some states, big team trainers are finding it difficult to handle the logistics involved. Not all horses are good enough to race in the city, some are best placed on provincial tracks and others are sent to country meetings where prize money levels have increased appreciably. Training partners are able to share the commitment of attending race meetings and the complex day-to-day running of stables housing teams of 50 or more horses. A groundbreaking new partnership to get away to a big start in Victoria is the one between Robbie Griffiths and Matt de Kock, son of internationally renowned trainer Mike de Kock, who has won 3,400 races in six countries. And this is the first training partnership between an Aussie and a South African. Robbie Griffiths had been a respected trainer in Melbourne since 1991, with 1,700 winners on the board, including a Group 1 Newmarket and dozens of stakes races. He'd previously enjoyed a brief but highly successful stint as a jockey, winning 250 races and riding for some of Australia's biggest stables. Rob had a major health scare last year, which forced him to take a long look at his stress levels and almost certainly played a part in his decision to form this partnership. As we introduce Robbie on the podcast, I can tell you he's just getting over another medical procedure, but this one was of his own choosing. He's had an old shoulder injury repaired by the wonders of keyhole surgery. What'll I think of next, Robbie Griffiths? Hey, John. Amazing, isn't it? This <laughs> keyhole stuff, you were home in five minutes. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? They, you whiz in and whiz out and uh, you're back home, as you say, in five minutes. Is that the legacy of a race fall years ago? I think when you work with horses, yeah, you have the legacy of many injuries. <laughs> Yeah, they can knock you around a bit. They do weigh half a ton when it's all boiled down. Yeah, the weight scale to ratio is uh, is not in your favour. <laughs> You'd met Mike de Kock, uh, Rob, once or twice at the English Melbourne sale. 
and you were very flattered when he asked you to tutor his son in Australian training methods and to familiarise him with the Cranbourne Training Complex. Absolutely, yeah. With Mike being one of the world's most decorated trainers, uh, I was certainly very uh, honoured to have the opportunity to uh, to be given the task to uh, show Matthew, his son, the, the lay of the land because uh, Mike uh, and his son Matthew had chosen Cranbourne to set up training here in Australia. Um, so I was, I was given that task and that was a great honour. We probably should explain just how much experience Matt had gained, not only at home in South Africa, but on the many overseas missions his dad sent him on. Oh, exactly. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, with with Mike being such a, a, a trailblazer and uh, and travelling the world with uh, setting up a stable in Dubai and and uh, you know World Cups and uh, Breeders Cups in America and and travelling to Royal Ascot and uh, you know all over sort of England and, and France and all the different places that that, uh, that Mike's had uh, uh, runners throughout the world. Matt has mm-hmm. been. Uh, his assistant and uh, and travelled the world with all of those top class horses that had been world uh, had been world renowned and uh, and and represented Mike in uh, in his ventures and so mm. Matthew has had that global experience and been there with all of those top class horses so uh, he's got that uh, that uh, international experience that we all uh, strive to achieve and he's got that on his CV so he's uh, he's a very experienced young man indeed. Mm. When you decided to offer him the partnership, how did it play out? Did you ring his dad in South Africa? I did indeed, yeah. My wife, Sharani, and I, um, running our business here, we rang uh, Mike and Diane in South Africa, knowing that their intentions were to set up in Australia and brought our partnership idea forward. And both uh, both families could see the benefits of, of uh, joining forces that sped up the process of... Uh, runners much faster um, you could see the benefits of uh, bringing the par- partnership together um, two trainers two sets of eyes share the workload um, the whole all the positives were there it was so much greater to join forces and to set up uh, one uh, versus uh, joining together so mm. both uh, both of us, uh, both families, could see the benefits, and uh, it was it, it just it just made so much more sense, John, to go mm-hmm. down that path. So, uh, so we all agreed that that was the way to go, and then uh, then we could uh, you know we could speed up the process so much faster to do so, and we could pretty much have runners instantly, mm-hmm. and concentrate on all the benefits that were already in the pipeline of the international benefits of any any horses that come from South Africa or international clients that wanted to invest in Australia could come forward much faster Mm. than what was going to happen in the pipeline anyway. Mm. Consultation between you and Matt would be crucial, I'd imagine. You'd have to be communicating every day. Make sure you're on the same page. Yeah, and we are, and we're very compatible with our thinking, which was great. And the lockdown of COVID has actually worked in our favour because we couldn't – Sort of do anything other than work together. Um, so we've had a lot of time to um, work alongside one another. Um, we're very uh, compatible. We have great synergy with how we think, and uh, and that's been it's made it's made our partnership agreement very very easy to go down that path. So it's been fantastic. 
Now, Rob, you got a hell of a scare last year when doctors discovered you had the makings of potential brain aneurysm. You'd been feeling a bit out of sorts, uh, off-colour, irritable, and you finally decided to do something about it. You were what then, 50? Yep, yeah, just... uh uh, yeah, just before my uh, 50th birthday, uh, I was, uh, yeah, given an unbelievable scare, John, and uh, I went, had an MRI and was booked in to see the doctor 48 hours later with the results. And knowing that uh, when you get a call within an hour from the MRI off your doctor that isn't rostered to see you for another 48 hours, mm. it's a hell of a scare when that call comes through and my wife was driving the car, and uh, she said, uh, my GP, who's fantastic, said to my wife, what are you doing? Where are you? What's happening? Mm-hmm. And um, luckily, the car was uh, come to a stop at my mother-in-law's, and she said, quickly rush Robbie to the uh, hospital. Uh, he's mm-hmm. got a ma- major um, major aneurysm, which is uh, potentially bleeding, and there's a lot of matter, and he needs urgent attention because you know, this could kill him, you know. Mm. So, um, but stay calm, which, which, which oh, yeah. was hard, hard to do. Easy so, to say. Uh, <laughs> and um, and it, it's something that, you know, really rocks your world because you just don't know. And and a lot of these things, you know, when you look, luckily for me now that I was very fortunate that I survived all that, but there's a lot of people that don't. And we were very lucky that we had a warning and uh, a lot of people don't have that uh, opportunity to get those warning signs. And um, we were lucky that we had we put in the best possible healthcare, mm. and we had the opportunity to rectify the aneurysms that were there. They were quite sizable, yeah. and I'm here to talk to you about it. So uh, yeah. we're very fortunate. And you were up and going again in not very long, was it? Six or seven weeks. It was incredible. Um, the surgeon, Professor Leon Lai, at, uh, did the uh, surgery at Jesse Mack in, at uh, Clayton. And um, we had, uh, yeah, brain surgery, which went for an extended time frame. It was a bit difficult to, to get to the aneurysms. It went for sort of nearly five-hour surgery. And um, he thought he'd be in and out in an hour, and it took longer than expected. He thought I'd have a, quite a, a lengthy recovery, but um, I recovered quite quickly. And uh, and even when I had an MRI the other day, um, he, I was really delighted to say that I don't have to see him now for, for another five years. So I've, oh, wonderful. I've, I've, I've really recovered incre- incredibly quickly. So I've been very, very fortunate that all the care uh, and aftercare has, has gone extremely well, much faster than they expected, actually. Yeah. Now, Robbie, what is your advice to those blokes listening to us right now who think they're six foot six and indestructible? <laughs> don't believe it. Go uh, get regular checkups. Uh, I, uh, I'm living proof that uh, you must get checkups. I thought going to the chemist, getting a Panadol was the way to go, and <laughs> total, it is totally wrong. You must have a regular GP. Yeah. Go get regular checkups and uh, don't take it for granted. Just because you think you're feeling good, it's an absolute no-no. Get checked up for sure. You're the son of a horseman. Your dad was too big to be a jockey, but he was a pretty good horse breaker and he taught you all of the basics at a very early age. Yeah, he did. My dad's an outstanding horseman and uh, unfortunately couldn't be a jockey, but he got to 
learn his trade with outstanding horsemen as well. And he and uh, he he got to break in a lot of great uh, horses for the likes of Angus Armanesco and some of those great trainers. Mm. So he was always around horses and all he's ever uh, all he's ever worked with his whole life as horses and still is today. So um, and trained trained as well, but on a small scale. And um, was fortunate enough for myself and my brother that all he uh, ever did was teach us uh, horses. So we were very lucky growing up that we had that opportunity. Because of the influence of your older brother Rod, you were always going to become an apprentice. Now, Robbie, let's pay tribute to brother Rod right off the top. What an outstanding jockey he was. He won 1,600 races, career, 16 Group 1s in Australia and overseas, and he was your inspiration from a very early age. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, at his peak, he was as good as they get. He was world-class, and uh, certainly during his peak uh, of his riding powers, there was none better, and I think it's fair to say you couldn't possibly get a better jockey than he was uh, during that time frame. He was certainly outstanding and probably a groundbreaker in many ways because he certainly brought back to Australia that that European style that uh, that they ride with today. So, uh, yeah, he was certainly an outstanding rider. You know, most of the leading stables utilised his services from time to time and he often went around in Group 1 races. Now, let's pay tribute uh, to that wonderful Group 1 double he notched one day at Caulfield. The date was the 4th of March, 1995. He won the Blue Diamond on Principality for Peter Hayes and he won the Futurity Stakes for Lee Friedman on Scalacci at his one and only ride on the Great Grey Sprinter. Yeah, yeah it was outstanding, wasn't it? Yeah, he was... Uh... It was a great effort to ride. Not many riders can ride a Group One double in in, in one day, and he did that. And uh, and one of his other Group One uh, outstanding rides was on Primacy for for the Hayes team as well. And uh, mm. he drew sixteen in the uh, they call it the Cantala now, but he drew sixteen from the mile start at Flemington and box seated. Not many jockeys can do that. No. Well, <laughs> suddenly, Robbie, it was time for you to become an apprentice, and you were signed up by Bob Scarlett at the famous Epsom Training Centre, long gone now, sadly. Bob had been a good jockey himself and he was making his mark as a trainer, but he set you back on your heels very early in the piece when he took one look at you and said, you're going to get too heavy, son. Yeah, he was a great uh, great boss to uh, be apprenticed to because he did it all himself. He was a champion uh, apprentice and, uh, and jockey through the the golden era with Jeff Lane and um, and uh, and and a, and a great trainer and trained overseas and and had the uh, skill set that every apprentice wants to have with a master. He could uh, tell you about all the the do's and don'ts about riding all the tracks and uh, what to how to succeed being a, a great jockey himself. So yeah, he set me uh, he, he he set me on the right path and he knew what to uh, how to. Uh, guide me the right way and he, he knew that I wasn't going to uh, last long enough in the saddle so mm. he, uh, he taught me the right way early days which was very important and being a trainer himself uh, he could give me the skill set that I needed as a trainer knowing that my time in the saddle was going to be short-lived. Mm. You went to Gippsland to ride your first winner 
It was a horse called Mervani, trained by Bob Scarlett. It was on the first day of the two-day Moe Cup Carnival, and you thought you were Roy Higgins. <laughs> I did indeed. Uh, a great idol and a great mate uh, Roy Higgins was to me, and uh, I was very fortunate to win on my first day, and it was a great story because uh, – and this is the, the wisdom of my boss, Bob Scarlett, because he uh, he was ahead of his time when it comes to the marketing, because back then you might recall in the in the form guides, they used to just put an, an initial, so it'd be R. Griffiths, and my naturally my brother is R. Griffiths, being Rodney, yeah. and uh, my name is Robbie, so it was R. Griffiths. So in the form guide, there was two R. Griffiths, because Rodney had a full book, and I had a, I had a couple of rides, and... Um, so all day they were trying to work out which uh, is our group has got two rides in the one race or what the hell's going on here. There's yeah. all these uh, uh, grippers, as you see. <laughs> and anyway, uh, uh, back when I first started riding, I said to my boss, Bob Scarlett, I said, should I be, my middle name's Darren Griffiths, maybe I should be D Griffiths. He said, you are Griffiths, that's it, end of story. And I wondered what he was doing. On about, yeah. On. Yeah. Anyway, uh he just wanted the free marketing, you see. So all day on the radio, they kept talking about Argriffus, Argriffus, Argriffus. And then I come out and won the race. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, so I got all of this free advertisement, you see. So he was pretty uh, pretty sharp for the boss. He was mm -hmm. he knew what he was doing. Well, you must have thought the riding caper was an absolute snack because on the very next day, second day of the Moe Carnival, you won again. On a filly yeah. called Norgwyn Fleur, who trained her? My boss again. He mm. uh, he had the horses all ready to go. He uh, made sure that I was uh, I I got the ball rolling straight away. He had Mavani ready to win on the on the day one, and the very next day Norgwyn Fleur was also trained by the boss, and she led all the way and won also. So he was uh, he had him primed up, ready to uh, make an impact for my start of the uh, riding career. So, well, the impact wasn't finished yet because <laughs> the next day, which must have been the Friday, off you go to Taralgon, still in the Gippsland, and you ride another winner, three yeah. in three days. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a pretty uh, great start to the career. Oh, was it? What? Your first <laughs> city winner, Rob, came under unusual circumstances. You ran second on a horse called Bright Scholar at Caulfield, but you got a pleasant surprise three weeks later. Yeah, it was a funny way to win your first uh, Metropolitan uh, success. A, a, a champion one called uh, Campaign King, uh, trained by uh, Les Seedle back then before he went to the, the great Bart Cummings and uh, Harry White won on him. And then X amount of weeks later, uh, uh, we were notified that Campaign King had returned the positive swab so i was uh, uh pushed up from second to uh first so uh it was a funny way to become your first metropolitan winner but uh anyway the way it goes <laughs> and none of us would have dreamed at that time the heights that campaign king would reach later he was a pretty decent horse to chase home he was an absolute superstar you had to wait a while for your first fair dinkum winner in town and that came on the 14th of June, 1986, at Sandown. You won on a horse called Hello Henry, trained by a wizard called Bob Hoisted. It was a three-year-old race, and you bolted in. I looked at the margin the other day, three lengths. 
Yeah, he was a he was a terrific uh, gentleman. Uh, Bob Hoisted, a superstar trainer, um, just an all round uh, champion in in every format. Uh, he uh, he was a great mentor to so many of us. Um, you know, Mick Price and uh, so many of us at Morty Alec Epson Training Centre back then were fortunate enough to uh, be assisted by him. And uh, he was fantastic to myself. He gave me my first city winner, as you've pointed out. And Hello Henry was uh, was a beautiful young horse, and uh, he bolted in that day. Mm. And uh, for the famous uh, Jacobs family that uh, had some great horses with, with Bob, and uh, and Bob Hoisted was very good to me, and uh, and a wonderful man. He was a president of the Australian Trainers Association. He did so much for so many people. You know, he was a fantastic man. Another wonderful Epsom trainer who took a shine to young Robbie Griffiths was the one and only Ross McDonald, who trained many a top-class horse over the years. He put you on quite a few, and you rode some nice horses track work for Ross, uh, Twistark, Impazera. Yep, yeah, Roscoe and Margaret were fantastic. From the time I started race riding, they uh, gave me rides straight away, and I rode a lot of winners for them. Um, so I, I unfortunately got beat on uh, on Impazira at Sandown one day, which didn't make Nick Collum very happy. But uh, <laughs> I also wrote a lot of winners for for Ross and Margaret, and uh, got to win in the famous Kingston Town uh, Colours at Flemington, and um, wrote a lot of winners for Ross and Margaret, both on the metro and the in the country. But they were fantastic uh, people to me, and uh, they really supported me very well. Uh, all, you know, throughout uh, my whole career, so terrific. Rob, you, you're very fond of an old horse called Alternate. He raced forever. He won 20 races all up. You rode him in four of those wins, Pakenham, Mooney Valley, Flemington and Sandown. He was good for you at that time. Yeah, he was. He was a terrific horse and uh, I also ran second on him in the Liston Stakes and Fifth in a Turnbull in a Group One race at uh, the Turnbulls, one of the biggest lead-ups to the you know Caulfield Cup form and Melbourne Cup form. So he was a great horse, alternate, and uh, trained by Peter Fox at uh, at Epsom Training Centre. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a, a, a character of a horse. He used to um, go to the track every day. And you'd feed him spearmint lollies, and uh, he was a real character. He loved it. You know, he was mm-hmm. a great horse, and. Uh, a horse that uh, he actually retired him, and he he got so he got so frustrated with being retired, he he wouldn't eat. So he brought him back into training, and he won he won another three races. <laughs> Goodness me! I think he raced to ten, didn't he? Yeah, because he retired him at eight because he thought Goodness he was too me. old, and he he, yeah. he got he got annoyed with being retired. So he brought him back and brought him back to training every day just to give him something to do, and he won another three or four races as an older horse. Mm, good guy. You had four rides on a filly called Seapost for another Epsom trainer, Don Bartscheiger. Two wins, two seconds. Both wins were at Mooney Valley, and I think one of them was a decent race, a stakes race. Yeah, she actually won a, um, a group uh, a group two race now called the Tranquil Star, which was, uh, I think it's a $400,000 race these days. It's uh, a very good race and uh, for Don Bartscheiger, who ended up moving to Singapore to train and uh, his son's taken over that role now but she was a very good filly by top post and she um yeah she was quite talented i did a lot of riding for donnie back then before he uh before i got too heavy but um she was quite a talented filly mm. 
One lovely little hit-and-run mission you executed was a quick trip to Launceston in 1988 to win the Tasmanian Oaks on a filly called Sound Gull that was a Group 3 then, and she was trained by Lee Friedman, who was fairly flying. He was indeed, yeah. Lee was always good to me. He always gave me uh, rides, and um, naturally I had a, a click really well with her. I'd won on her in the in the provincials, and, um, and then Lee uh, asked me to ride her over there, and she drew poorly, drew barrier, the outside barrier, and um, I rode it back in the field, and she rounded them up, and she absolutely bolted in the uh, in the oaks over there, and um, then she she come back and ran fantastic in the CUNY Stakes, and uh, she was a really nice filly. So uh, it was a really nice to win a, a race like that for Lee. Now, just casting your mind back, Rob, to that point in history, nineteen eighty eight. How was the weight struggle at that time? Oh, I was pretty ordinary. I was sort of struggling to ride, you know, under fifty five, which you know a lot of the top weights in Melbourne had fifty four and. Um, you know, so when I had a kilo and a half claim, a lot of the times I couldn't utilise it. So uh, it very much depended on who had the top weights. And um, Colin Hayes had a lot of the top weights around that time. So Michael Clark was stable rider. So mm. it very much depended on – there wasn't a, wasn't a lot of opportunities for sort of the heavyweight apprentice. But um, mm. but I was fortunate enough that I had good support. As you mentioned, some of those names, Bart Schicker and uh, Tony Basil was a young trainer on the way up that was starting to support me. and. Uh, and, uh, you know, Friedman was always good. Uh, Colin Hayes used to utilise me on some of the top weights. And uh, mm. so I was very lucky I still had good support, but it was more so for uh, just for riding rather than my claim because I couldn't really utilise it because I was too heavy to take mm. off the one and a half. I was barely riding the weight, let alone taking off the claim. You, know? mm. you won a couple of races for Tony on Marathon Star including a listed, the Diamond Jubilee Stakes at Mooney Valley. Now, Tone was just getting going at that time, Rob, and you and he became a pretty good combination. Yeah, yeah, we had a lot of success together and um, in, we really clicked well and uh, Tony was a young trainer then on the up and he grew quite quickly and and that race that you mentioned is now the Stock Stakes, and um, which is a Group 2, I believe, and it's en route to the Sydney Autumn um, carnival where I rode her in the uh, the two group ones, which was called the Orlando Wines back then. It's the, uh, the two group ones uh, in in the autumn, where she ran fifth in 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 one of those, and uh, and then I retired about four months after riding her in the autumn uh, in the autumn carnival, and then my brother took over the the role of uh, riding for the, the Tony Stable, and Tony continued to grow and then become uh, got Elstrom and Harada's son and all those great horses which we've seen in the history book since so mm. he uh, he was very good to me uh, and she was a terrific mare she 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 bolted in that day that uh, at Mooney Valley and uh, she was fantastic mare you know your <clears throat> behavior on and off the track in that era must have been exemplary because in 1987 you were voted the Victorian Apprentice of the Year, Ducks of the Apprentices School. That's a good dinner party material. <laughs> Thank you, John. Uh, yeah, we. Uh, I had. Uh, yeah, I was one of the Ducks of the Apprentices School, and uh, it was quite good. And I, uh, being a heavyweight apprentice, one of the awards I used to get was to win a saddle. So I normally used to 
tick that and give it to one of the younger apprentices on the way up because most of my saddles were quite little. I didn't need those. <laughs> give one to the, one of the juniors on the way up. <laughs> yeah. Now, Rob, when you finally had to give it away, when the rigours of the sweat box won the battle, you had a career tally of 250 winners and I think you were just one win short of outriding your city claim. Yep. Right. Yep, I would have liked. I would have liked to have done that. I was. I was either one. I think I was one win short, one or two wins. It was something like that. It was very, very small. Um, I think I knocked back uh, quite a few metropolitan winners um, because of, in the in the in the latter part of the um, of the career, because I didn't quite finish out my apprenticeship. Would have been nice to achieve it, but uh, not to be. But um, yeah, I couldn't quite see out the apprenticeship. I retired. At the age of twenty, before oh, I seen the um, back then, you were an apprentice till you were twenty-one. But um, but that was just the way it was. I uh, couldn't maintain the weight, so it was time to hand it in. It was nineteen eighty-nine when Tony Vassell put a proposal to you. He suggested you should work for him as a stable foreman, continue to ride track work, which he knew you'd enjoy but take a complete break from race riding. And that's what you did. Exactly, yeah. Look, Tony Tony, and uh, and a gentleman, Leo Shemnitz, who was a fantastic uh, friend of mine and uh, and a great confidant for, for Tony. Um, they, did, they did me a, a great service then because I, I was probably too pig-headed to want to give up riding and I was struggling with my health to maintain a, uh, a reasonable weight. So rather than uh, rather than retire, I had a break. And um, at Tony's advice, being an ex-jockey himself, he said, "Don't don't retire. Just have a break for six months and give your body a rest, and uh, and then get back into it." And he knew full well that once I had a rest, and yeah. that would that would that would make me realise that I actually can't do this anymore. Yeah, you so, did yeah, have a, you had a little crack though, didn't you? A quick little did, comeback, you know? yeah. I had a quick comeback, and six months later, he said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean? He said, come on, six months is up. You've had your spell. Time to get back into it. So I uh, got all the gear back on and got into it, and I had half a dozen rides, and they were successful rides. Me, mm. me last, I think I went out second in the wind, my last two rides. and um, mm. But he made me realise that I my body couldn't do this on a regular basis. So thanks to him, um, it made me realise that riding wasn't long term for me. So, um, so that that gave me the opportunity to realise that uh, it's not not the, not my future. So uh, I hung up the boots with no regrets, um, and that was something that I think jockeys need to do. And uh, and I did that. Rob, just stand by for a moment. We're going to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with you after this. Entries are now open for the 2021 English Select Yearling Sales Series. The series will again comprise five sales. Classic, Premier, Easter, Gold and the Hunter Thoroughbred Breeders Association May Yearling Sale to be held at Riverside in Sydney and Oaklands Junction in Melbourne. Each of the three primary sales, Classic, Premier and Easter, will retain their regular places on the sales calendar. Following its success this year, the Scone sales will be moved permanently to Riverside on May 2nd and May 3rd and will be rebranded the HTBA Yearling Sale. 
the Gull Sale in Melbourne will be held on May 16th. To discuss the placement of your yearlings, contact a member of the Inglis Bloodstock team. Well, by this stage, deep down, you'd made up your mind to become a trainer. So you took yourself off to Ireland for a brief holiday, principally to observe the training methods of some of the better-known trainers of that era. Who were they? I was very lucky, John, to um, – my brother had a contract with Kevin Prendergast and uh, he's a champion trainer in Ireland. And um, I got time to spend with Kevin and he was also based at the Curra. So John Ox and uh, all those uh, great trainers were at the Curra and you got to see uh, all those wonderful trainers when you go to the races. Vincent O'Brien was still training. Jim Bolger was training. Mm. So you, you got to see all those wonderful trainers there in Ireland and it was fantastic. Well, you finally set up shop at Cranbourne and you got on with the, your new career and since then you've won 1,700 races. In 1991, uh, that was your starting date and there have been a lot of special horses since that time. Now, Robbie, I've listed a few that I know are on your list of favourites, so let's briskly slip through their strong points. The remarkable Dandy Kid. 87 yeah. starts, 19 wins, 16 placings, $812,000, and he had the same sort of affinity with Mooney Valley that Chief De Beers had for Doombin. He set many a milestone at the Valley. What were his records there? Yeah, he had 15 wins at Mooney Valley, which is the official record for the most wins at that track. So, uh, he's, you know, which is incredible when you think of the amount of horses that have graced Mooney Valley over the, the last 100 years. So uh, he loved it. He, he loved the high pressure. He'd come into the home bend uh, length in front and come out, you know, three in front. You know, really? was, he just used to break them on the corner and an uh, incredible horse and uh, – and the standing ovation he got when he when he held the record there was just incredible. He got the same ovation as you know Winks would get winning a Cox play. It was just amazing. Yeah, lovely amazing. stuff. Mm. Well, his best win, he wasn't a group one horse, we know that. His best was a group three, the Bletchingley Stakes. He ran in a couple of group ones, didn't he, unplaced? Yep. Yeah, he did. His, his best win was a Bletchingley with Luke Curry on board. Um uh, when he won the weight for age at Caulfield, which was his winner. He had 19 wins. He won one at Caulfield, uh, a couple at Sandown, and mm. one at Terrelgan at his first start. And the, all every other win was at Mooney Valley. Mm. I bet you think of him in your quiet moments, dandy kid. <laughs> Absolutely do. And he looks a treat too. Today yeah. he still looks fantastic, yeah. Who's looking after him? He's at. Uh, he's going. He's been at Chasm Drew Morfords for ever since he's retired, mm. and uh, he's going to. Uh, yeah, they've been looking after him since he's retired. Mm. Well, the quarterback gave you a well-deserved Group One, the 2016 Newmarket with our old mate Craig Newitt on board. Prior to that, he'd won a couple of listed races, but this was the one you were after. Yeah. Yeah, it's a very special day, the quarterback winning the new market. Uh, it's something that every trainer wants, the group ones, and, and what a what a horse to do it with because uh, it was with a great group of friends. Uh, it's, a, it's a special story for so many reasons. I trained his grandmother 
which uh, Peter Ford and myself bought, uh, you know, many years earlier. Mm. Uh, ironically, coming back from Ireland, we seen Brief Truce win uh, in 93 when we were there. And then this, she was the first season of the Brief Truces. And then uh, many years on, um, we bought the, uh, um, uh, the granddaughter of uh, her, being uh, grandson of him being um, the quarterback. And then, um, and then um, our great mate Dean Lester is in him with Craig Pierce, who's a great loyal supporter of our team. And then um, he, it turns out to be the quarterback. But uh, to win at Flemington, the, one of the, you know, arguably the best sprint race in Australia, and to go past the champion like uh, Tatakwa. I mean, Tatakwa's been beaten before, but no, nobody's ever gone past him, and the quarterback did, you know. It was an amazing day, John. It really was. And uh, we had a game plan. Dean Lester's got great racing analytical speed maps. And our game plan was to, uh, which was a, a bullish one, to follow the uh, Chautauqua and go past him, which nobody, I don't think anybody's ever been game to do. And we had that game plan and it come off. So it was brilliant. All up, he won nine. He ran eight placings. He did a wonderful job, the quarterback. Now, what about Angelic Light? Went with yeah, a short she... head of giving you another group one in the Manicato. There was a lip in it. <laughs> there was a lip in it, and we, we probably should have got it in the protest rooms. If you asked Damien Oliver, he was adamant that we should have won it in the protest rooms. But uh, mm. she was so deserving of a group one. She beat the uh, champ, Lankin Rupee, a couple of runs earlier. And um, she probably should have the uh, group one on her CV, but she was a great mare that was uh, – affordable purchase for 30 grand at the Melbourne Premier Sales and she was a fantastic race mare that ran in a stellar year of sprinters um, but she gave us a lot of enjoyment. She really did. She was a fantastic horse. Mm. You're a master at keeping those old geldings going into the veteran class. Confederate Kid was another Rob. 60 starts, 7 wins, 17 placings, couple at Mooney Valley, one at Caulfield Super consistent horse. Peter Merton's rode him a lot. Yeah, well, uh, one thing I've been fortunate enough to learn coming through the era that I did with uh, the guys like Bob Scarlett and some great old horsemen that uh, they say if you look after your horses, they look after you. And Dandy Kid won his first four at two and retired a last start winner at 10. So when you look at Confederate Kid and Dan's Island and a lot of horses in our stable, we look after them so that they – they can race for a long time for their owners and Confederate Kid was exactly like that, like a lot of our horses, you know. Mm. And he was a terrific horse. He won what's called the the, the new market of the bush, the Wangoon, you know, mm. and uh, he was a terrific horse and he won that race and his owners had a lot of fun and he nearly won the standish. He ran second in that. He won a lot of races. They give us a lot of enjoyment, Confederate Kid. He was a terrific sprinter. You had a lot of time for Beltoire. Didn't race a lot, 24 starts, six wins, seven placings. You part-owned this bloke. He won four in town. One of them was a listed. He ran second in a Bobby Lewis, second in a Standish, fourth in a Goodwood Group 1, only beaten a length that day. Should have won the Goodwood too, John. He drew very wide and uh, was very, very unlucky and he probably should have had a stand, uh, Group 1 Goodwood on his CV. Mm. But uh, he... We bred him. Um, he was a horse that we uh, we 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 bred him, and uh, he was a good horse, and uh, he was very talented. And that CV uh, 
could have easily have had a Group One on it, but mm. a good, very good horse. Here's another old timer, Cochinero. You paid fifty five thousand for him at an English Premier Sale. He had fifty six starts, eleven wins, nine placings, six hundred and seventy two thousand. Good horse. Yeah, it was a good horse, and I think they might have even left off some of the Vobus bonuses. I think he ended up winning 800 with the bonuses. Oh, did he? Um, yeah. yeah, he did, and he was a really good horse. He was the second season of the Costa de Lagos before he got too expensive to buy, and uh, mm. he ran El Segundo to a whisker in an Australia Day stakes. He didn't win Group 1. He ran fourth in a few Group 1s, but uh, mm. uh, but he didn't win a Group 1, uh, but he had he was borderline – up to that ability, and as I said, El Segundo beat him a whisker in a Group Two around the Valley. But uh, he was a very, very good horse. He helped Bretton Abdallah as a young apprentice, and now he's a superstar jockey. Yeah, interesting to note that ten of his eleven wins were on city tracks. You dream of things like that happening. Now, Solar Antiquity was a likely race daughter of Sunline sire Desert Sun. She had 18 starts, five wins, three placings. She ran second in a Goodwood handicap to a pretty smart mare called Glamourpuss. Yeah, Peter Merton's rode her beautifully, and she got she's only got pipped by a whisker, not by much. And then she come for a stellar year because she'd ran third in the in the Sangster Group One as well to uh, Alingi, Glamourpuss, and her. Mm. So they were just slightly uh, ahead of her, and then. Uh, Lingy didn't run in the Goodwood. Glamourpuss didn't pip this, so they were just slightly had the edge on her. But she was a very, very good mare. She didn't have the soundest of legs, and uh, she did a remarkable job to uh, to line up in those races. And um, so, but she was very, very talented. Can Canel was good for the stable. Twenty nine starts, four wins, six placings, well over three hundred thousand. And our great mate Danny Brereton rode her when she ran second to Animoto in an Australasian Aches in Adelaide. It was a stellar ride too. It was an unbelievably good ride. And um, she was a, she was a bargain buy from the Melbourne Premier Sales. I think she was $30,000. And we uh, she came through a, a fa- fabulous year of Phillies, Miss Finland's year. So we thought we'll sneak her across to Adelaide for the Group 1 and dodge Miss Finland. They all went to Sydney. And we ran into Hayes' other good filly, Animato. And they broke the course record, and uh, we ran second in the Group One. And Animato went to Hollywood and ran uh, third in the Oaks in in Hollywood in America. So mm. it was a stellar year of fillies. It was a really top class year, and uh, so she was a bit stiff not to get her own Group One, but she was a high class filly, Cancanel, and goodbye for thirty thousand dollars. And there've been so many other good winners for the stable. Rob, it is written, who won three listed and about eight hundred thousand. Halverson won seven races, including a Standish. There was Dan Xylem, Avionics, Dash to Viz, who won the All Greys race uh, at Flemington one year. Big Pat was another. He won the Group 2 Saab quality. But what about the horse you stole, and there is no other word applicable, from Tony Santic for $5,000 and promptly went out and won another 300000 with him? Mr. Riggs. <laughs> oh, Mr. Riggs, yeah. Well, Tony, uh, Tony Santic and, and, and Elf Matthews and the guys, they uh, they uh, sent him down to the stables and he was an immature horse that uh, needed time to develop being a, a, a progeny of Carnegie and he was always shinsaw. 
So they didn't want to, uh, they didn't want him any longer. They had plenty of horses. And so I said, well, you know, can I buy him off you? Most of the times they they want to keep him when the trainer wants to buy them. I said, yeah, no worries. You can buy him for five grand. So we bought him and uh, give him a bit more time to mature. And you end up winning 300 grand as an older horse once he's, once he had time to develop. And uh, we had a lot of fun with him. He's named after that wine uh Mr. Riggs, the Shiraz, so uh, we ended up <laughs> drinking a bit of Shiraz when he won, John. <laughs> I bet you did. Plenty of it. <laughs> but Tony was wrapped for us and Elf was wrapped for us, so all the boys that were in him were very uh, delighted that we had a lot of fun with him, so they, was, uh, they were quite happy for us. Now, just before we close the door on Big Pat, I mentioned that you won the Group 2 Saab quality with this old stayer, but he was your only runner in a Melbourne Cup, Rob, and he finished in the middle of the field and got a check. Yeah, it was a fantastic story, John, because he was uh, he was a good horse that lost his way and he was available to be purchased. And Dean Lester was quick onto the phone mm. and said to me, we should be buying Big Pat. I reckon with the right program, we can get him back into the Melbourne Cup. So we did that. And with a, a four-run program to get into the Saab, we rejuvenated his form lines. And next minute, we've ran fourth first up, fourth into the Herbert Power. We win the Saab and we're qualified for the Cup. And it was an unbelievable journey. And we've ran top 10 in the Cup. We've won a quarter of a million bucks. And it was just an unbelievable to have a runner in the Melbourne Cup. And it was something that the owners, if ever you get the opportunity to have a runner in the Cup, it's just an owner's dream. It was just an incredible journey. And uh, it was something that we will just we'll cherish forever. It was a fantastic, uh, fantastic opportunity. Now, Robbie, you're one of those blokes who's given a lot back to the industry that's been good to you in your role as federal president and Victorian branch president of the Australian Trainers Association, a role you fill for about four years now. Now, that means meetings, it means emails, it means text messages phone calls, and a hell of a lot of time. How much time? Oh, I'm pretty lucky. It doesn't mean too much time now because um, we have a really good structure there. Part of the uh, part of the deal of doing that is to uh, not impact on, uh, on the business of training. Um, part of the agreement with taking on that responsibility is that it doesn't uh, impact on the business of uh, Griffiths the Cock Racing, you know. Um, and we've got a really good CEO in Andrew Nickel, and he's got a great support team under him with John Alducci, the former CEO, and and so on. So basically, we have a really good committee. Uh, Vice President is uh, Troy Corsons, and then we've got Pat Carey, and we've got a whole committee spread around the state, and then and the same applies federally with other states and so on. So pretty much, we meet. At the moment, during the COVID year, on Zoom uh, and, and email and so on, and pretty much how it works, John, is that the trainers' ideas, being myself and the committee, their ideas are left with our CEO to do all the groundwork, and uh, and his his committee under him do all the legwork. So the idea of it is is that the trainers' ideas are then put into action, but we don't have to do the action. So it's yep. not designed for me to be bogged down in that type of work, if that makes sense. So mm. it's a really healthy organisation so that everything gets done really well. 
and I can concentrate on doing my business with the with Griffiths the Cock Racing. Mm. Well, it's been a great journey, Rob, and at just 51 years of age, you've got many wonderful years ahead. Your health's good, your stress levels are under control, you've got great owners and a great new partner in Matthew de Cock. Full steam ahead, Robbie Griffiths. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. And lovely to have you on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. <laughs>